Turn to John chapter 7. I'm going to jump right in this morning and read. Um, I'm going to read beginning in verse 37 through the end of the chapter. Through verse 52. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When the people, or when they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Stop and pray again. Father, what we, what we do not know, I pray that you would teach us this morning. What we do not have, I pray that you would give us today. You know our deepest need. Lord, we believe that our deepest need is Christ. So I pray that you would um, feed us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this uh, final section of John chapter 7, um, we saw very clearly, as we even looked at it last week, uh, the first few verses here, that Christ brings division. When Jesus speaks, especially in John's gospel, the most frequent response that we see is, is division. Christ brings division. He, he himself even said in Matthew chapter 10, Verse 34, he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And as I said last week, that until Christ returns, he will continue to divide. He will continue to, to wield that sword. Let me review just a little bit from where we were last week and the previous several weeks. In chapter 6, we saw all throughout, and especially really in the last two-thirds of the, of the chapter, we saw that the, the people rejected Jesus over his failure or really unwillingness to perform signs and wonders for them, at least on command. Of course, it wasn't a failure on his part. It really was a refusal uh, because the signs that he did, like feeding of the 5,000 early in the chapter, uh, they were done to validate his message, 
to prove to them that he was truly from above, that he truly was from the Father, full of grace and truth, and that his message really was worth listening to. And now it was time to listen to his message. But they wanted none of that. The people just wanted more bread. They just wanted more miracles. They just wanted more show. But then throughout chapter 7, there was division over, as he began speaking, there's division over his words, over the things he was saying. And so even early in the chapter, his own family doesn't believe in him. As the chapter progresses, some in Jerusalem will say, well, he's just a good man. Others believe that he's actually leading people astray. As he encounters the Jewish leadership, they can't understand how a man who had never studied in one of their schools, one of their, their schools for rabbis, their rabbinical schools, they couldn't understand how somebody who hadn't studied with them could have as much learning as this Jesus does. And if you were to go back this week and read again through chapter 7 of John's Gospel, you're going to see conflict, you're going to see controversy, you're going to see confusion, and you're going to see division in virtually every response to the things that Jesus has been saying. But then at the end of the chapter here, in these verses that I just read, there, there's actually a tendency on some of the people some of those who have just heard his invitation in verses 37 and 38, they've just heard him say those words, and, they, and they, they tend to want to accept those words. Surely this is the Christ. Yet as we see at the end of the chapter, they end up rejecting him because, really simply because he's from Galilee, because of where he's from. But again, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, he said this, listen to these verses again in context. Matthew chapter 10, he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves, his fa whoever, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives me, or receives you, he says, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Well, I said this last week that Jesus is the great divider of men. Jesus is the great divider of families, of some of our families, even some of your family, some of my family. He's the great divider of churches. We can see this historically. Some of us have experienced this. Jesus is the great divider of children from parents, of fathers from sons and mothers from daughters. We need to remember that this, this, this final division here at the end of the chapter, these divisions where everybody seems to be divided with, from everyone else, 
They're really in direct response to Jesus' invitation. Verse 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the good news. This is the gospel in kind of in concentrate, boiled down in concentrated form. And it brought division among those who were gathered here in Jerusalem in this chapter for the Feast of Booths. And so as I mentioned last week, there are three categories of people here. Um, and, and, and there are really some, some important lessons for us in each of the categories. We're going to go back and, and this morning, we're going to look at the second and third categories here. But as a reminder, the first category, which we looked at last week, was the people. These were the lay people. Uh, they, were, they were those who are religious. They are churchgoers, so to speak. They're in Jerusalem for the, for the feast, but they're not in religious leadership. They're not the leaders of uh, the Jews. And to use a modern kind of Christianized term, these are normal church-going people. They were divided among themselves. They were divided with each other. They were so close to Jesus Christ literally, and they missed him. These people, they read their Bibles. They knew at least some scripture. They were good, as I said last week, they were good at apologetics, at defending the faith. They followed the worship calendar. They were there for the festival. And instead of experiencing righteousness and justice and peace, all they could see was division and discord. One of the biggest reasons for this was that their teachers were not teaching them God's Word. And instead, they even viewed them with contempt. We're going to see that as we move through this. Well, this second category of people here are the officers. Some Bible translations, I think the NIV, I think maybe some others, calls them the temple guard. It's not a literal translation, but that is a good description of who they are and what their task is. And these officers find themselves divided, really, from their commanding officers, from their uh, employers, from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And this group of officers is really the group to watch the reaction of, because in their role as temple guards, they've seen and they have heard all kinds of rabbis, all kinds of different teachings. They've heard it all. These are really experienced police officers so let's take a, <clears throat> a closer look at their reaction to Jesus' invitation to come and drink. He says that in verses 37 and 38, but pick it up in verse 45. Verse 45 says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Now, it's important to understand that these are official temple guards. These are not Roman soldiers. That's sometimes what we think of when we think of officers in New Testament times uh, as the Roman soldiers. But these were official temple guards. These men are not thugs. Many of the Roman soldiers were, were simply thugs. These men were not thugs. In fact, they are actually Levites. Um, these officers are men who have been trained in the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament law. These officers are men who are set apart by nature of their family line, by nature of their tribe, 
for service in the temple. Back under the reign of King David, which was hundreds of years before this, the book of First Chronicles in chapter 26 actually tells us that, that part of what David did in, in his administration of Israel was to organize the, the Levites into various roles and responsibilities. Now, if you remember anything about that period of Israel's history, David really established Jerusalem as the capital city. He built a palace there. He started to assemble the, the materials so that Solomon, his son, could build the temple. And so uh, Jerusalem becomes the capital under King David. And so he organizes them as instead of re- really kind of uh, nomadic um, uh, marauders under King Saul at war, he kind of establishes them as a, as a real nation with a real capital and a temple and a palace, a, a white house for the king to live in. And part of what he did in 1 Chronicles 26 is that he, he, he organized the Levites into various uh, roles, including some of them were gatekeepers. They would stand guard at the gates. Some would guard what would become the, the temple treasuries. And then other officers and would serve as, as kind of police officers and, and judges who, who would serve the Lord as needed throughout the nation of Israel. If we were to think of these men in our, kind of in our modern church settings, these men would be like our deacons. And so they, would be, uh, they were supposed to be godly, qualified men who would serve specifically in the area of, of safety and security. And so they stand at the door and make sure that the people with um, ill intent don't get in. They would keep us safe. They make sure that the, the offerings are secure and that everything is above board. That's their job. But these officers were also kind of a, a private police force for the Jewish Sanhedrin, which had developed by the time of Christ. The, the Sanhedrin was this religious court, and it was made up of both the chief priests, who were uh, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, who were kind of a religious political parties. As a result of all of this, these officers have heard many religious talks in and around the temple. They've heard lots of rabbis teach. And we can imagine that they were, I would imagine, probably calloused to a certain extent to all of the teachings that they had heard. Like police officers who've heard every single excuse for speeding that you can come up with. Or to give maybe a different example, my brother Craig worked for a couple of years at the Inn at the Word of Life Bible Institute in Scroon Lake, New York. That's where the Inn is where many of the visiting lecturers would come and stay. And sometimes they would have some fairly well-known uh, lecturers, at least well-known kind of in Christian circles. Um, they would have some fairly well-known men come in to teach. People like Jerry Falwell when he was alive, for example. Um, later, after my brother moved to L.A., graduated from college and gotten married. His wife, Amy, uh, worked in the office of the Bible department at Master's College, which is Master's University now. And they became good friends with Doc, Dr. Halstead, Doc. He was the chair, is the chair of the Bible department there at Master's. Um, Doc and his wife, Doc actually married Craig and Amy, and they would go to their house once a week with a group of friends, and play games, watch movies, that type of thing. But as a result, they were able to meet 
Not only was he able to meet a bunch of people at Word of Life that were fairly prominent, he was also able to meet several more prominent, well-known Bible teachers, pastors, through his connections there in Los Angeles. Then a few years ago, they moved to Kentucky, to Louisville, where they went to Southern Seminary and became friends with several professors, authors of books that I have in my study, maybe some of you have. Um, And he's able to listen to lectures and sermons from all kinds of different people. We might be impressed. I know I can be impressed. Some of us, anyway. But Craig, Craig is not impressed. He is not easily impressed. He's traveled in these circles of fairly well-known Christian authors, pastors, for so long that nothing really impresses Craig anymore. That's what these temple officers are like. They're just not impressed. They just see everything. Strictly speaking, they should not have been moved by Jesus' words. To them, what Jesus was saying was, was just another lecture. He was just another rabbi giving just another teaching. These, these were professionals with a job to do. They had been trained. Many of them had, been, had received better training than most of the rabbis that came in from, from the outskirts of Jerusalem or the outskirts of Israel to teach. They knew the Scriptures. They had orders to carry out as well. Look back at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They had a job to do. So these men were men who had a job to do. They were professionals. They also had heard everything. They'd heard every kind of teacher possible. But when Jesus makes his pronouncement in verses 37 and 38, they abandon their assignment and they return back empty-handed. If anyone thirsts, Jesus had said, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why did you not bring him? No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. We've heard a lot of rabbis. We've heard a lot of Bible teachers. But no one ever spoke like this guy. No one ever spoke like this man. This is actually not an uncommon response to Jesus' words. At the very beginning of his ministry, when he he taught in a synagogue in Mark chapter 1, and in verse 22, the response of the crowd was this. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, other than the awe that we can infer from their statement, no one ever spoke like this man. Other than that awe, there's really no other information given here about the officers. Because what John is doing is he's trying to highlight their division with the Pharisees, or or really, the Pharisees dividing from them. But what we can see, even in their awe, was that because of what the words Jesus has said, they they were dumbfounded. No one ever spoke like this man. So however this kind of episode here might reflect their their incompetence as officers of the temple, they had a job to do and they did not do it. However this, this scene unfolds and shows them to be kind of incompetent officers, at least, at least in the view of the leadership, 
Their statement magnifies their witness to the complete otherness of Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. They're saying Jesus is completely different from anyone and everyone else. Jesus is not a typical rabbi in, in any sense. No one ever spoke like this man. They're in awe of his word. They're in awe of his teaching. No one ever spoke like him. Because of his word, these men, these guards, they stopped doing their job. They returned to headquarters and they clearly are moved by what they have heard. His word is the focus of their report. His word is what is significant. Remember, they, they're part of the, the they back in verse 30, which, which starts this, when, when they heard these words, that they is everyone. When everyone heard these words, when they, when these officers heard these words, they don't go back and report the chaos of the crowd, which we can see in those verses. They don't go back and mention the divisions of the people that they saw. They don't come back and give an excuse for the political ramifications of their involvement or their fear of Roman soldiers, whom everyone was afraid of, by the way. They don't even explain what was really happening in verse 44. Remember verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? These were the guys who were supposed to do that. We don't really know why, except to say that it wasn't his time. And they were struck by his words. That's what we know. They were stopped by his word. They were stopped in their mission. No one ever spoke like this man. These are educated men, remember? These are Levites. They're struck by Jesus' invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Charles Spurgeon, do you know who he is? Probably. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, While the constables who had mingled with the throng were waiting for an opportunity of arresting the Lord Jesus, they themselves were arrested by his earnest eloquence. They could not take him, for he had fairly taken them. They were stopped by his word. But just like the people in the previous verses, verses 40 to 44, this doesn't mean that they trusted in Christ. They were close to him. They were impacted by him. But we can't just go ahead and assume that this meant that they became his disciples. Because just about six months after this, just about six months in the future, we will read this. In John chapter 18, verses 3 to 5, John tells us, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, obviously, we don't, we don't know if these are the exact same group of officers or not. But what we do know is that his word stopped them. In fact, the very next verse, in John 18, verse 6, they were stopped by his word again. 
John 18, 6 says, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They were stopped by his word. This is the power of the word of Jesus Christ. Let me rephrase that. This is the power of the word of God. This is the power of the word of God. Why do sometimes, why do sometimes we think that the the written word, the Bible, is any less powerful than Jesus' spoken word? Why do we sometimes think that the Bible is any less powerful than the words that Jesus spoke? Now hang on to that thought. We're going to circle back around to it in a moment. But as you consider the power of his word, consider these things. His word has the power of authority and astonishment. I already quoted from Mark 1, 22, and, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. His word has the power of authority, the power of, to bring astonishment. But consider the authority of his word and the astonishment that it produces. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 32, when he says just one word, he says just one word and listen to the results. Matthew 8, 32, and he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Jesus said one word to the demons, go. And the whole herd was destroyed. His word has power, power of authority. His word has power over sickness. Luke chapter 5, verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The leprosy left him. It fled from the word of Christ. That wasn't a one-time thing. This actually happened a lot in the Gospels. This is why, by the way, we still pray for sick people. James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And implied in that, implied in that passage in James, and and explicit in places like uh, Luke chapter 5, we see that that his word has the power also and connected to all of that with forgiveness. In Luke chapter 5 is the passage where some some friends lower a, a paralyzed man through the roof to reach Jesus. And when he sees their faith, Luke tells us, he says, man, your sins are forgiven. And then he proves that he has the power to forgive sins by healing the guy. And he gets up and picks up his mat and walks out. His word is the power of forgiveness. God even even promised this in Christ back in Jeremiah chapter 31 when he said of of the new covenant, which Jesus said he made with his blood. Remember, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. In Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, we read this, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Jesus said, Man, your sins are forgiven. His word has the power of forgiveness. His word is the power over death, the power over resurrection. Lazarus, come forth. Remember that story? His word is the power over death, the power of resurrection. Lazarus, come on out. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. I'm not even going to tell you the reference. By now you should know it. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 or 4 and 5. But God, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. His word is the power of life. His word is the power of life. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. John tells us that in chapter 1. In other words, let there be light. And there was light. His word is the power of life. His word has power. If all of this isn't enough, listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, what the officers are literally saying here, what they literally say, yet they don't understand, they don't comprehend, is no human being, these are their literal words, no human being ever spoke as he does. And we know this to be true. We know this to be true because Jesus is the word made flesh. John 1.14. No human being has ever spoken like this. Jesus is the word made flesh. His word has power. And yet it also divides. And the division runs deep. See, as, as soon as the officers come back empty-handed here, the accusations fly. Look at the rest of verse 45. Let me read down through 47. The officers came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Deceived. 
Have you also been deceived? They're actually accusing Jesus of being a deceiver. They're accusing Jesus right there of being a deceiver, a a great deceiver, a great deceiver of men. Whether they realize it or not, they're putting Jesus into the same category as Satan. That's what they're saying here. Have you also been deceived? Paul will write in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He will tell us that the activity of Satan is deception. So, so he says this, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Wicked deception. John will tell us in two places in Revelation, and actually others, but two specific places, the fate of the deceiver. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then in chapter 20, verse 3, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And it actually goes on from there and gets worse for for the devil. Have you also been deceived? This is actually blasphemous. They're blaspheming Jesus Christ right here. They're so angry with Jesus. They hate him so much that they're blaspheming. They're self-condemning. They're condemning themselves. But look at the irony of verse 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the, or the Pharisees believed in him? Of course, this is a, it's a rhetorical question. They're expecting a, a negative answer, if an answer at all. They expect the, the officers to think or even maybe to say, of course none of the Pharisees have believed in him. They're much too smart for that. But then it gets worse. Verse 49, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. These stupid people, that's what they're saying. These stupid people, they're cursed. The chief priests and the Pharisees look at the people, normal people, churchgoers. They look at them with contempt, with with absolute scorn. Do you know how Pharisees regularly looked at at common people, people who were not Pharisees? They often called them people of the land. They saw them as as country hicks who who didn't, who, who couldn't know anything about the law. These people couldn't know anything about God's word. And as a result, because they don't know anything about God's word, they're cursed. They're destined for destruction. They're destined for hell. They're cursed by God. They're divided. These Pharisees and chief priests, they're they're divided from the common people, the regular people who, who in their view, were not smart enough to recognize a, a deceiver when they saw one. These are the teachers of the law. 
These are the teachers of the law. These are the the chief priests, those who go before God, before the people, to offer sacrifices for their sins. These are the shepherds of the sheep of Israel. And they look on the crowd as a bunch of incompetent Jews who are simply cursed. And so they divided themselves from them. They divided themselves from these temple officers who seemed to be, at least in their view, incompetent employees and even incompetent Levites who've been deceived by this Jesus. But not them. Not them. They're not deceived. Of course, the irony is that they are deceived above anybody. But then they have even conflict amongst themselves. And John specifically outs Nicodemus Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Nicodemus was one of them. John is clear to point that out here. This means two things. First, that even though he had gone to Jesus back in chapter 3 with some questions, so John 3.16 that we all probably know, he said actually to Nicodemus, uh, along with that whole passage, Nicodemus had gone to him with some questions, but he is still in leadership. He is still a a ruler of the Jews, as as John describes him in chapter 3, verse 2. That means that he is, he's very influential in Israel, and, and especially, and even in this group. But they're quick to mock him. That's what they're doing in verse 52. They're mocking him. And then secondly, so not only is he still in leadership with the Pharisees, but it also means that, at this point at least, Nicodemus is not yet a Christian. He's still aligning himself with the Pharisees. He went to Jesus by night, John chapter 3 says, says, we know that you were sent from God. He proceeds to ask him a couple of questions, and Jesus explains the gospel to him. And at this point, he is still not trusting in Christ. He's still aligning himself, at least with the Pharisees. Later in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, we're going to read this. Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so maybe Nicodemus is in this category, but at this point he's still one of them. Later, I think it's in chapter 18 of John, he and Joseph of Arimathea will go and prepare Jesus' body for burial, which seems to indicate something beyond a a fear of the Pharisees at that point. But for now, he is still one of them. And so here he's, he's not asking them to put their faith in Jesus. He's not asking them to believe in Jesus. He's simply asking them to follow the law of Moses. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's actually saying, you guys have all condemned this guy, but we haven't even had court yet. And they respond really in anger and pride. That's what their response is. They're mocking him and they're in anger and pride. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I should point out at this point the irony that even though it is called Galilee in the New Testament and it has various other names throughout the history of the Old Testament, 
This same geographic region of Galilee was home to the Old Testament prophets Jonah, Nahum, and possibly even Elijah. In other words, this is blind hatred. Search and see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. They don't care what God's word says. They hate Jesus so much. They have rejected him. They are dividing division and scorn and anger and hatred. That's really the final point here this morning is that the word of God divides. They didn't care what the Bible said. Search and see. They didn't expect Nicodemus to go back and search the Bible. That wasn't the point. They were divided and they were going to stay divided no matter, no matter what they could do. God's word divides. I told you to hold on to the thought that we sometimes think of the written word as less powerful than Jesus' spoken words. But listen to what the written word itself has to say about that. Hebrews chapter 4, just, just verses 12 and 13 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. These are sobering words about the power of the Word of God. The Word is powerful. It cuts right through our own thoughts, right through our own intentions, and it leaves us exposed before Him to whom we must give an account. It leaves you exposed before Him, God, to whom you must give an account. So let me finish with this. Because this should be our response as a church. This should be our response. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We can read these verses without fear, without fear of judgment. Because Jesus has said, God's word says, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means those who have believed in his word, have trusted in his word, have tasted of the power of his word, tasted of the power of forgiveness. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians says. That's actually about worship. It's written to the church about worship that's our response. That's our charge. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly because God's word is powerful. The word of Christ is powerful. The word of Christ brings forgiveness and healing and restoration. And so we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink, Jesus said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You drink from the well of the words of Christ, the words of our God. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Let's pray. God, as we read these words, as we hear your word proclaimed and read, I pray that it would dwell in us richly, that it would dwell in our church richly, that it would dwell in each of us richly, that we would admonish one another, teach one another, encourage one another out of your word, that we would be people who are clinging to your word because your word is powerful. Because the word of Christ, the word of God brings forgiveness, restoration, and healing. Lord, help us to trust your word. Because these are very, very much God-breathed, breathed out by you, given to us, that we may know you and worship you. And so, Lord, it is our prayer that we would be transformed as the word of Christ dwells in us richly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.